Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Welcome to the New Observations Podcast. Today, I am delighted to welcome to the show Rachel Portesi, who is um, an extremely talented photographer. Uh, and um, I'm not sure where Rachel is from originally, but we are fellow Vermonters at this moment in time. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, Mia. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. And um, I want to say a couple of things first. At the moment, Rachel has a stunning exhibition at the Brattleboro uh, Art Museum in Brattleboro, Vermont. Uh, It's just a knockout show of her photographs of women um, that are breathtakingly beautiful and inspiring in terms of the divine feminine um, in its purest essence of of beauty and um, creativity. So thank you so much for sharing your work with the public in that way. And um, thank you for your compliments on my work. <laughs> oh, it's just stunning, um, and particularly meaningful in the in the time of the COVID virus right now, when um, we need to be inspired as much as possible um, on every level, and to to see. Uh, for me and for many others, beauty is one of the doorways to higher realms of thought, and your work just evokes um, such a, a sense of um, the divine feminine, but also bringing the natural world into into it with the way that you use um, plants and flowers, and it's just remarkable work um and and so timely as women are currently striving and succeeding slowly but succeeding in reclaiming um our space in the world uh, I, it's just such important work at this moment in time and to do it with with beauty in the way that you do uh, instead of a sense of strident um, demanding because you know the beauty and the elegance and and the, the primal force um, surrounding that intelligence is really what women are all about you know we don't have to be about hammering people over the heads to claim who we are you know this is the, the natural force that we've been given um, so you know, I can't say enough about your work. It inspires me every time I look at it. Oh, Mia, thank you so much. And it's nice to hear your thoughts about um, these women, seem, or the power of the women in these images. I was really taking a look at my own life and of my young models' lives and thinking about my parents um, and wanting to make images that honored uh, you know, female identity, but on a woman's terms, I think, like uh, sexuality that was for their own pleasure, their, you know, and, uh, and the, you know, the flowers representing the natural female, um, uh, the nature of women in, in general. Um, it, 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 uh, I, I tried to make them very powerful, but for themselves and celebrate their beauty and trying to think of it as women claiming it for themselves rather than for the pleasure of of men or how society feels they should view women. So it's nice to hear you say say that. Well, you succeeded beautifully. And and also (laughs) the the way you're placing, you know, the the plants, uh, the plants and integrating them with the women, you're you're communicating in a subtle and powerful way that women are in fact um, not just immersed in nature, but one with nature. We are part of that cycle and that life force. And it just comes through so uh, poetically, but also in such a strong way. I, I, I think your um, 
I think you're opening a new chapter, actually, in terms of how women need to perceive themselves. And um, that's another reason why I admire uh, your work so much. So thank you for thank that. Thank you. I think there's something to that, you know, um, in, in, in politics, in, uh, in, on, on the workforce. Women, I think, um, had to almost emulate men for a while, be one of the guys to be taken seriously. And I think, you know, we're ready to move beyond that. I mean, certainly women can be, uh, have classic kind of male uh, ways that they, act, that they are or they present themselves. But I think that um, they've had to in some ways hide the part of their femininity or use it in this kind of a sexual way in the past to move forward. I think there's a way of embracing the whole woman in all of her, all of her, in all of her ways her masculine and feminine side together. I think there's a lot of strength in, in that. Absolutely. I think, that's, I think that's a wonderful observation. So tell us how you um, got involved in photography in the first place. Well, you know, I was um, always interested in art uh, as a child, I loved at one point in, in elementary school that someone would come in and talk about paintings with us, and I was always right up front, like so excited. Uh, my parents took me to museums, and I, I just was, I loved it. I was so engaged, and at one point even we visited artist studios. Um, I was always in the art room during free periods at school, drawing, painting, making anything. I was just hungry for it, and in high school, I had this horrible uh, art teacher. It sounds like it's something from a John Hughes film or something that couldn't even be written. But <laughs> this guy, he was nice to me, but he would literally rip student work up and harass them in class. It was it made for a oh volatile environment. And so just over on the other side of this large art room was the photography class, and I just switched. So I started taking photography. Um, and my father had had taken photographs before, so he handed over his Pentax K1000, and I never looked back. I just, I loved making uh, images. So at age, I, I don't even know, 15, 16, so I'm at 36 plus years of, of taking photographs. Wow. And are you using an older uh, camera now? Um, how do you make your images? Because they have a, a very beautiful vintage quality to to them? How are they processed? So what I'm making now, they're called uh, wet plate collodion tintypes. And technically what they are, they're, they're direct positives made in the, cam in the camera. If you think of it like a really old-fashioned Polaroid, it's the best way to imagine it. Um, my camera's huge because these plates are up to 14 by 14 inches because they're direct positives. The back of the camera has got to be that size, be able to hold a plate that size in it, in a plate holder. Um, and the lens has to be big enough and the camera big enough to let enough light to expose a plate that size as well. Um, and so it's a process that was popular. It's one of the earliest photographic processes. So if you see Civil War photographs, those are wet plate collodion tintypes. So I'm using this really archaic form of image making. Um, yes. It's perfect for your subject matter. Yeah, it's perfect for your subject matter. I think so. Um, there's something about the struggle with having this kind of romantic look that I like and, um, and trying to make something new of an, of an, old, of an old process. Like you, you see images and you expect a certain thing. There are a lot of portraits of people made this way and a lot of older photographs. But I was trying to, uh, you know, make something new from this old. And sometimes when I look at these images, I feel like there's kind of this uncovered matriarchal tribe of really strong women, like left untarnished by, <laughs> by men or the patriarchy or other, uh, keep, you know, other elements that have kept us down throughout the years um, when I look at them. So I, that old I, I think it comes through loud and clear, honestly. And... Um, I, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear what your male audience has to say, but um, you have captured, you know, 
and the archetypal women uh, image of of women of natural women that's something else that I, I find so powerful every time I look at your work. Um, well, thank it's you. Like you connected to the, to the goddess uh, energetically. Yes, and I'm making images directly, you know, that try to, to uh, that look like goddesses. Um, I feel like these photographs, really, um, women have responded to them primarily. I feel like I'm making photographs of women for, I feel like they're for women, um, and that's who mostly responds to them. I had a, a male artist visit my studio at one point who I admire, and I was showing him my work, and he at one point said something like that I hadn't quite, I don't know, something to the effect like I hadn't quite captured the, the oozing sexuality from these young women, and I thought, oh, my God. For a moment, I thought, oh, my God, no one's, going to want this or be interested in this. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's kind of exactly what I've been trying to show, that there is another kind of sensuality, sexuality. And um, and then I thought, I've kind of captured that. And, and maybe it's fine if men don't respond to them. And, and since then, I thought of them as being for women. I'm not sure. It's fine if men don't respond to them because... You know, they really are uh, empowering for women. That's, you know, that's, we've been given this mirror ourselves. And it's really, it's a reflection of how men see us. As in, in my opinion, you've, you've found, you know, this interior uh, self that, we all possess as women and you've brought it out and, and your, your photos are essentially saying to women, so this is who you are at the core. This is, this is your essence. This is you. Yeah. And that's such a gift. It really helped that the women I worked with photographing were so, it was, it was interesting for me how strong, they are at, at their young age or early 20s. And I was thinking back to myself at age 20 and, and then my mom at age 20 and thinking how, how we have really changed and grown, you know, in these three generations of women to be, they're so much more self-assured, self-confident, and they own themselves. It, it was a pleasure and a celebration to see. I felt in some ways I was celebrating that and, and kind of reparenting myself in some way and, you know, forgiving my, my young parents for being different. I don't know. It all was wound into one piece in that regard. It's a, pro- it's a process. Um, as a mother and a wife uh, and an artist, I'm curious to know uh, how the COVID virus and the quarantine have influenced your art-making process, your creative process, and, and also if you've noticed any um, t- tweaks or changes in consciousness throughout 2020 as we've uh, progressed through this uh, phase of the virus. Yeah, I think, you know, probably my experience is much like other people. It's been a wild roller coaster ride, you know, from the beginning where, um, you know, suddenly what was really important came so clear. And honestly, my work wasn't even anywhere on that list. It was my husband, my kids, my parents, and just a few friends who I really love. Like somehow the circle of important people in my life um, became really clear, and it became the only thing that seemed to matter. You know, I thought of like, um, I, I thought we were diving into a rapid Great Recession and so uh, depression. I mean, and I thought like, okay, what are the important things? Like, we have a roof over our heads. We need food. We need we need to support each other. Um, that's very much how I was feeling at the beginning of of the um, of, of the onset of this COVID virus in the spring, um, and then of course came the phase where my kids were doing online learning for the whole second half of last year. Um, it's, it's just been, it's been interesting where my priorities are. And, and, and um, um, at the time when the virus hit, I had been making these images of roadkill, 
that I have in my freezer. I was thinking a lot about death um, and and trying to come to terms and process, like and find a way to be comfortable with the idea of dying. But the minute COVID happened, I I didn't I couldn't touch that. It felt really raw um, and frightening. How interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you um, feel that that was like some precognitive um, impulse pre-virus? That it's it's you know it's such a departure from the current work on on view. Yeah, um, it's something that uh, death has always been some kind of part of my work, and even some of the the, the hair portraits that are in on view at the museum are about about death. Um, for me, um, and this was just another level of physically handling death, it, uh, which I thought I had some idea leading up to making those that like I've come to terms with death, like I'm comfortable with this, but then actually handling a dead thing, um, and uh, even an animal, it was so incredibly hard to do. Um, it hurt. It ate. Like, death is unpleasant and disturbing, really. Um, and I, I forced myself to make some of these images. And um, it, it was like taking a bitter pill or something. Um, anyways, I don't, I don't, I don't I, know. I can I imagine. It. Yeah. It's not the reaction I expected to have. I was like, all right, uh-huh. I got this. But then you have, like, a dead raccoon dripping blood <laughs> on your studio floor. <laughs> You know, like it started, wow. I've always been interested in thinking about these animals that are along the roadside that are dead, and I, my, they hurt my heart, you know, especially birds of prey. Um, and my friend hit a raccoon, and she was distraught, and I'm like, let's go get the raccoon. And like, that's how it started. We went and picked up the ra- raccoon, oh. um, and I'm like, I'm just going to make a photograph. I'm going to honor this raccoon and then bury it, you know. And it was kind of like part of a healing thing. And, and then people started bringing me all kinds of roadkill. Oh, wow. Um, I want to come back to this, but we're going to take our first commercial break. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. It's so interesting that you should um, have this connection to the animals by the side of the road because I do too. And it disturbs me tremendously. Um, and every time I pass a dead animal on the road, I always say a prayer for it um, because I, I truly believe that animals are on their own spiritual path, um, and there's a profound sadness um, for me when I know that they've been hit by a car, you know, simply trying to live their, their life uh, yes. as they they're, you know, as they're meant to, um, there's a, a tragic element to, you know, our civilization encroaching on the, on their world. Without a doubt, it, it breaks my heart, the effect of our existence on, on the animals. Um, it really does. Uh, I, I was on a whale watch once with my son's school, and this whale came right up to the boat like really close. Maybe they tell us to everyone who goes on a whale watch, you had the best experience ever. <laughs> but this whale is in its eye. I just looked at it and I just, I felt so, I just burst into tears. I felt some connection. I don't know about, maybe not a connection to the whale, but I just felt like I am so sorry <laughs> for, for right. what you've done to this planet and to you. Um, yeah. Did you, um, up in the, I mean, I I had this experience, but I'm curious if you did because you're in Vermont also. It seemed to me once we went into quarantine for about a month or so, the everything here became more vibrant. The trees, you know, were happier. There were so many more birds out over here in the in the Chester area. Um, and I know, for instance, that the dolphins returned to the canals in Venice. It just seemed that everything um, was in a, a more vibrant, peaceful state. And that could be projection on, on my part, but 
I, I definitely sensed that there was a difference. I felt the same, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, I, I didn't know if all these animals were out celebrating, or if also like there weren't there weren't cars on the road, or as many planes. There was it was really a different sort of quiet, and I I couldn't tell if the animals were out like hurrah, people have slowed down, or if maybe the world slowed down enough for us to just feel their presence a little bit more and see them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not sure. But I do want to mention that the canal in Venice thing is not real. <laughs> I thought it was. But isn't and I put it on Facebook myself. No, it was some kind of Internet joke something. It's my understanding. Oh, really? I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, it was debunked by Snopes or something. But I was oh. telling everyone about it, celebrating the dolphins. I did the same thing um, that, that, you, that you said, yes. Well, you have to be careful with Snopes. Um as well, because they don't always tell the truth. But, oh, really? Um, I use that to debunk yeah. things all the time. And shoot. Yeah, no, they're um, they're not the most reliable source. Um, well, uh, look at the mainstream media. <laughs> I know. You know Is we're, there anything uh, reliable? That's what I want to know. I mean, I talk to uh, um, NPR and, and some journals to some extent. To, you know, to uh, to a large extent, but I think we've really reached the point where we have to do all of our own research from multiple sources, and then use our own uh, intuitive skills and and processing skills to determine yeah. what's accurate and and what's not, because we're fed so much disinformation on every level. Um, yeah, so, and, 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 and doing that is so counter to how we've evolved to live right now, which is in tiny snippets and memes and little bits. Um, that I feel like people don't have the patience or won't take the time to do research like that. It's, it's actually it's hard to do. Um, it's an interesting, uh, we're going in opposite directions that we need to all at the same time. Well, plus Google is editing what's available online every day. I've found obscure, obscure articles on various subjects, and then I've gone back to find them again, and they're gone. Um, Interesting. It's, um, and <clears throat> I'm a bit of an activist, and more than a year ago, I was censored from YouTube completely, with, and I don't even post videos, but... My comments really about people, you know, getting involved in their communities, making a stand. I got it without a warning. I was I was banned uh, from YouTube, and every single comment I posted was taken down. Oh my so I was yeah, I'm at the forefront of the shit that's going on right now. Um, wow. So. It's interesting, censorship, you know, we don't want to spread misinformation, and at the same time, we have freedom of speech. It's an an interesting question, and I've had my entire Instagram account deleted um, because I just forgot something had boobs on it. I didn't even think of it because, uh, you know, they're in my artwork, and my whole account and all my followers gone in an instant without warning. Um, Wow, see, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. And yet your work is so positive. Yeah. I guess uh, boobs, someone saw them and didn't think it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Crazy time we're living in. I, I, You know, there's a sense of reordering that things are, you know, the deck is being shuffled and things are, being ordered in in a new way. I look forward to seeing how it plays out, especially since we're so global now, you know, and all these people with different views and different, you know, different ways of living. It'll be interesting to see how that all, how how the deck does shuffle. Absolutely. So now that the exhibit is up in Brattleboro, um, where do you see this work headed? Um, have you explored or is the museum exploring traveling this exhibition in any way? 
I'm currently in some conversations, and I'm definitely looking um, for it to move to, you know, another location, very much so. Um, I'm not sure exactly what form that will be, but I'm feeling more and more confident that it will have a home elsewhere after, you know, at some point in the near future from, you know, from the time the show closes. That's great. And have you considered um, the possibility of taking portraits of women from different cultures or age groups or, you know, expanding the variation um, in any kind of way? I really have been on the lookout. I found one uh, female to model for me years ago who had long gray hair. Um, like white gray, and I photographed her against the black background. And that, for me, was incredibly inspiring. And I have yet to find someone else. I mean, I do live in a little bubble, in fact, in a small town in Vermont. It's not like (laughs) I I, I meet a a lot of people or anything, but I put the word out looking for someone with long gray hair. I found one amazing woman who didn't want to model, and I think now um, I've, I've found another. So far, my models have just come to me organically. They've both been young women who were interested in learning about photography and they happened to have long hair similar to mine and, and it folded in that way. But I'm on the lookout for really white gray hair that's long. So if anyone out there <laughs> has that, um, it, it might be time, you know, I suppose COVID is not the time to put an advertisement out on Craigslist or something, but um, I hope to find someone that I connect with to work with. Um. Well, I have two suggestions. One is Dominique Browning, the former editor of House and Garden magazine. She has, or had, I, I don't know what her current hairstyle is, but for the past couple decades, she's had gorgeous, uh, long um, gray hair. And Ooh, um, yeah. <clears throat> there's that model from J. Crew uh, who started the cosmetics company Boom. Um, yes, which is I like love, a, she's someone I found totally inspiring, actually. I totally inspiring. Well, she has an entire community of gray-haired women. <laughs> well, maybe I need Who, to get in touch with her. It never occurred to me to reach outside, like, word-of-mouth people I know exactly or think about, you know, some. but that's, those are great leads. Um, and you're right, she probably does know a lot of gray-haired ladies. Yeah, I, I bring her up. Women personally, do you? Um, no, I no, I don't. But I I'm a master at writing to total strangers. <laughs> That's what oh, I do best. Maybe. And and I <laughs> I um you know I more you know nine times out of ten um you get a yes um in in terms of reaching out. Um, people are way more receptive than one would think. Um, so I, I really encourage you, you know, to do that because I think, I, I think that there's a, a whole series of possibilities with what you're doing. Without a doubt. And, and you know, in, in the past and during the making of a lot of this work, you know, I'm a busy mom also running my own business, helping run my husband's business. It was hard to find time to search for, for models, but I definitely have have that time now, so I will. I will reach out. I might read my emails first. <laughs> if I'm asking the right way, I'm not great at, at um, reaching out like you are. So, but I, I think those are great leads. Well, I'm happy to help, and we're about to take our second and final commercial break, so we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So, Rachel, um, with all that you have going on in in your hectic life. I'm curious to know if there have been any like subtle differences during the time of the virus. Have you noticed, for instance, as one example, an increase in your intuition or um, has, have your dreams been more complicated and um, revealing in any way? Um, do you feel that you've gotten closer to the interior, Rachel, through this quieter time? You know, um, after I reached the the phase of being sort of terrified by the virus, I think I've, again, really so much of it has to do with appreciating 
the, the people and environment around me on a different level. Um, and it's interesting you should bring up dreams because I have the most rich dream life. Um, but I think it kind of, uh, now that you say that, I thought I really have not been having so many dreams since COVID, which is surprising to me because I'm normally sorting out uh, a lot of that's inside me through my dreams. Um, so I don't know, maybe it put my dreams on hold. <laughs> Or actually you may be sorting in your in your wake time as opposed to in your dream time. Yeah, I suppose with less uh, interruptions from the outside world, that's entirely possible that my mind has more time to sort it out while I'm awake. I like that theory better. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Ver- Vermont has, <laughs> you know, Vermont has, has dealt quite well, I think, with the virus. Um, We're lucky to have a small population here. Um, And people, you know, Vermonters are pretty stoic uh, dealing with the weather and the challenges that come from living in an environment like Vermont. You know, you have to be committed, I think, to, to being here, certainly historically and you know, job opportunities and so forth are, um, you know, limited here. Uh, The beauty is incredible, but um, there are other other challenges that Vermonters face on a regular basis. So I think psychologically um, we're more apt to go along in hard times to cooperate and, and I mean, Vermonters have an incredibly rich history of helping each other and working together in times of disaster or hardship. Um, Without a doubt. There's something comforting about being surrounded by farms where there's food and produce and people with the skills to can, et cetera. <laughs> so it's like when, it, when you get down to it, I think that feels really good. Um, and also, as Vermonters and the pandemic go, I heard this hilarious joke, maybe you've heard it as well, where um, they, someone said, you know, they, they told Vermonters they needed to stay six feet away from each other, and the old Vermont, Vermonter said, well, that sounds awfully close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thankful that we have a lot of space between us. <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> and, and and psychologically true too because um you know vermonters are are very skeptical of outsiders as well yeah <laughs> i mean i was born here so i am not a flatlander but um you're a real vermonter then I am. But were your parents born here? (laughs) No, they weren't. They weren't. My father went to medical school here, and I was born his first year. So that's why I'm the only one out of five children born in Vermont. Uh, Love it. But nevertheless. (laughs) The badge of honor. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't help when I moved here. I mean, I still had to go through the process of uh, being examined and semi-accepted. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, I I love that about Vermont in some way. New Englanders, you've got to earn it. <laughs> you got you've got to earn it yeah, exactly. Um, so um, talk about um, you know the change in terms of your creative cycle when your kids um, had to stay home from school. And how that, did that interrupt your flow in any way? Oh, 100%. It's 100% interrupted my flow. There was, I had, I did not have time to, to work or produce at that, during that time at all. Um, yeah, I just stopped working. And it really, at the time, didn't even, I wasn't even lamenting the loss of that. I was just thankful to feel safe, um, and I knew I, I I didn't worry that it wouldn't you know that it would never come back or anything. I felt thankful for the time for us all to be together and for me to be there for them, to feed them, bring snacks, be supportive during a time when they suddenly can't see their friends anymore, and trying to learn on Zoom. Um, my practice completely halted at that point. That must have been really difficult for them. Yeah, I, and it's it's. I think you know, especially if, as um, you know, my stepdaughter is well into her 
teenage years and my son's just entering his, you know, they're supposed to be breaking free from, from the house and, you know, trying things on their own. And I think to be stuck at home with us, it's, it's, I think it is really hard on them um, for sure. So. Well, your husband uh, is also an artist. Eric Aho is a wonderful painter, and you were both preparing for exhibitions at the same time through this COVID virus. Yes. How did that yes, work for you? Mine was originally scheduled in, in June, um, and then it was postponed. I didn't even know if it would be rescheduled at all. And I was thrilled to have it rescheduled, but it landed right when my husband also had an opening. Um, and I photograph all of his paintings. I'm a, I do a lot of the behind-the-scenes work and getting his, keeping his business up and up and running. So there were really, I first had to put his 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 stuff before my own to get his work to the gallery in New York. Um, you know, our, our 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 ability to pay our bills totally depends on that. So there were a few moments for the first time where we're us both being artists at the same time, where it was a little intense. And it was a little bit in conflict with what I really needed to be focusing on my my show, and I was focusing on his. And in in the um, you know 13 years that we've been living together in this house, working, it was thankfully the first time that I felt really pulled by my wants and desires and what I needed to do for him. So, and we made it through the side, <laughs> but there were a few toughy moments for, for me personally. Well, these are extraordinary times. This is not the norm in any way, um, although I, I do feel that it's open, opening a whole new thing for, for all of us, um, but we're not quite there yet. We haven't quite left behind the, you know, the old paradigm just yet, but we're, we're on our way. Um, can you share with us some of your ideas about trends that you see happening for women artists right now um, as we as we move forward um, post-COVID virus, but also post-patriarchy, um, uh, post-Donald uh, Trump, not to get into the politics of it all, but um, from a gender uh, perspective, he sort of represents, you know, the old misogynist uh, way of viewing women as objects. Where do you see us headed uh, as as a woman artist and the contemporary world post uh, a Trump presidency, post patriarchy? Yeah, you know, I feel like his existence and influence really um, caused women to maybe like find a voice and shout it out a lot more loudly than before. I think it inspired people like a sort of creative call to arms. I mean, so much uh, artwork became uh, directly um, related to things he was saying and doing and, um, and, and women were protesting through their art. And I, I feel like in general it's really nice to see that women um, have a, are being taken way more seriously in the art world, that it's now a requirement. I think museums are rethinking their museum collections and galleries who they represent, not only for women, but, um, you know, non-binary people, you know, all sorts of people just to be more inclusive. Um, and, and I think that's an exciting, an exciting moment. Um, and I think it's it's a, it, it speaks to what's to come. I think that we're in some sort of um, a, a kind of different renaissance or revolution of of, um, of art right now. It'll be interesting to see how it all settles out. But I think I think, that I think that's really true. About things, you know, the art world maybe thinks about things before the rest of the world can. So I think if we're looking at what's happening in art, we're looking at. Uh, a promise of what's to come. And do you see that, you know, spreading into indigenous communities and, you know, many of, of your models have kind of an indigenous feel to them, whether they, you know, whether or not they are um, in, in fact, hereditary, uh, hereditarily people. 
Um, but there's, you know, that kind of native quality in some ways to some of your models. Do you, yeah. do you feel that because, you know, that's a, uh, an additional whammy, so to speak, of um, not only being uh, female but being indigenous too, um, do you feel that that will help or this change is, is going to help specifically indigenous people get ahead that much quicker at this moment? Um, I do. I think that in film and art, people are suddenly uh, maybe stopping to ask why other people are the, uh, uh, you know, white people are the ones making um, work about indigenous people um, and, 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 and the questioning. Uh, I think people are trying to step back and, and let some of these other voices some other people speak for themselves. I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious and interested to see what happens on that level as well. There's a lot of inter- interesting discussion to be had around that. Like, are we allowed to look at the other and take it in and think about it? And, I, you know, I think that we are. Um, but at what point does that become oppressive to other people because they also need to to speak for themselves. So um, it's an interesting and endless, uh, you know, conversation to be had around that, I think. I've been fascinated with the indigenous grandmothers who are traveling around the the planet, you know, holding ceremonies and speaking to other people um, about their wisdom and what's going on with the planet with Mother Earth, um, how we can come together to save the planet literally as we deal with all these environmental issues which are um, ice-threatening uh, and and mm-hmm. capable of destroying us in, in a very short period of time. Um, and I I do feel that your work, again, kind of personifies that energy that they, even though they're elders, um, are, are, you know, sharing and uh, emitting to the rest of us. Um, it's just an interesting progression that I see happening. And again, not in a militant way, but in a, in a very strong, powerful way. Yep, yep. Um, wow, so much, so much just ran through my mind as you were speaking about that and thinking about our planet and what's happening to it. I have a lot of, um, you know, anger and frustration at the large corporations polluting our planet and then, you know, and then, and then not paying for it and not fixing it and that we have to squabble amongst ourselves for how to, how to take care of this if it really is a problem. Um, I, I'm, it's it's interesting, and and meanwhile, you know, I'm thinking about how these elders are coming around, like you just mentioned, and and I think there's been a real um, draw to making things from handmade goods. This kind of passing along of past traditions seems to be, I I just want to say, kind of in style right now. Um, for those that can afford it. So I kind of feel like all the people, you know, who've, who've benefited from the damage to the planet um, can afford to buy things handmade and preciously made in this old way while um, a lot of other people ha- or feel like they have to shop at Walmart. Um, that, that, those are some quick thoughts that passed through my mind with, with what you were saying. It's a, it's a real um, movie in a way what we're going through right now and it's very much in one sense like um, there's so much that we're seeing in films in advance that in fact is becoming reality our reality as we look around us and I know in my own life I have clothes and material goods really I think to last for the rest of my life if I use them wisely. I mean, in many ways, grocery store, I need never shop again. (laughs) So it puts, you know, our material needs in question. 
Um, having lived in Manhattan for 18 years, you know, I mean, I was a, a loyal Bergdorf Goodman shopper for all of those years, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those days are long gone. So we're putting our, our actual needs in perspective um, mm-hmm. post-virus, I think. And yeah, also understanding, you know, understanding <clears throat> billions live without these things, um, things that we take for granted. Yes, yep. And I think there's a huge, like, socioeconomical and cultural, if you will, divide in in that. I mean, in the accessibility of well-made things, in the accessibility to culture, museums, art. I, I think um, I've, I've thought a lot about that. I think that, you know, we're lucky, we're privileged to be able to think like that and to think about what type of produce we're buying and make those decisions. Um, and yes, we all do have enough Absolutely. in our closets. I'm sure to last a lifetime. And it, it, you know, we're such a consumer-based society. It's such a strong impulse that I share. You know. Yeah, I think anybody reading magazines is um, heavily influenced in the shopping department. Um, it just, you know, keeps the branding and and the desire for more going. But yeah. it's gotten yeah. so so out of control. Um, at so the same time, it's like what's holding our economy up. Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, our, yes, our economy, our economy such as, such as it is um, at, at this moment in time. And a, actually, that's an interesting point that you're raising in terms of the economy because you know the the art world has been so uh, out of whack for a long time now with these obscene prices for individual works of art. You know, in the multi-million dollar range, the auctions are unbelievably skewed, um, and the idea that you know these these works of art are being sold at auction from one private collection uh, out of view of the public and then go back into another private collection never to be seen again until, you know, someone's family decides to sell it. Um, Which, you know, to all of us and, and historically in many cultures, Life has become such a um, such a for elite. Um, it's a it's a very strange dynamic. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that, and if the virus has influenced that with so many people now sharing their art online uh, with accessibility for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have, I, you kind of cut out there a little bit for me, but I have, you know, oh. two responses to that. And one is that, um, it, you know, it's interesting to see that these, uh, the, I'm thankful on one hand, but it's also appalling on another is the art market doesn't seem to have slowed down at all in those higher um, price-ranged artworks, you know, that we're, we're living in a society that's squabbling over a, paying people a decent living wage, and then yet that's happening at the same time um, is one thing that's, I mean, it seems that the wealthy have still been able to spend a great deal of money even during this time of COVID, which I find interesting. Um, and then on the flip side to the second part of uh, what I heard you say, um, something else really interesting is happening during COVID as far as accessibility to art goes. I think in some ways because there is so much online, um, in some ways, it has become way more accessible. I mean, my husband and I live in Vermont, and so often there's there's programming happening in New York, for instance, that we wish we could see. Um, and and but now everything's on Zoom, so we got to hear this amazing artist Solomon Tour speak last week, and then there's a panel discussing Frank Auerbach's work. And um, normally that would be something we couldn't 
you know, do without driving to the city. So I think there's there's kind of a two things. Some accessibility is is definitely um, there's more accessibility on one hand during this COVID time for sure, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, you are the perfect person to to um, say something about this because you and Eric are both artists. Um, which is share your thoughts about living with real works of art around you and how they feed you each and every day as you have them in your home and um, experience the gifts that they provide you as you walk through a room or, you know, sit um, in in direct or indirect contemplation of them, um, you know, while you're just in your environment. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky. Our, I think you visited our home, yes? Yes. I think you have. Our home is just covered in artwork, which is, is wonderful. I feel very fortunate, and many of them made by uh, friends of ours and some other that are just fine collectible pieces. For instance, Frank Auerbach, who I mentioned before, um, we have a nice collection. I will say, if I'm just being totally honest, when you're living in a world with stuff around you, you kind of can stop seeing it sometimes. <laughs> so, like it's just like on your walls. I feel uh, sometimes I'll notice something that I'd forgotten was even hanging there for a while, which is nice. You see it new. Um, and I, I think it's good to shuffle artwork around so you, you're looking at it differently, really. Um, I'm, I'm thankful my kids have grown up with these objects on their walls, on our, in their bedroom, and around the house as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely informed their, the way they consider things and look at the world, no, no doubt. Um, yeah. I just can't stress enough the importance of having uh, live art, real art, uh, whether you go to uh, an undergraduate you know, exhibition, um, as which is part of the requirement for an art degree, and buy things for fifty or a hundred dollars. But to have something that was handmade and contains the energy of the artist and and the work itself around you is truly um, a life affirming and and sustaining addition to one's life and um yeah and particularly now yes and particularly now as we deal with the virus and other surprises um it's it's so important that we feed that you know feed that energy and creativity within ourselves and and our homes Yes, I think that when I was speaking before a little bit about what became really apparent, what was important during these times, like the circle of friends, some basic needs, but also I feel like writing, poetry, uh, creativity, um, paintings, and even really the, the television shows, which are, uh, you know, I hate to say, but I think they've come a long way to being closer to films and they're, you know, all of this works of art are things that people are experiencing still and that make the list for um, quality quality of life, for sure. I agree with you, Rachel. I think that's completely true. The TV has definitely gone up um, several notches, and um, and I, I, you know, <laughs> I feel so uh, sad in a way that feature films are taking such a hit because I love going to the movies, but. Yeah. Um, at this moment in time, it's just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, so if you do include television shows and other things in the in the mix, art is very much what's sustaining people in this kind of isolating time. Um, exactly. That's really true. So we're getting towards the end of our hour, and I'm curious to know if you have any uh, anything you'd like to add about your work that you want our audience to be aware of? 
Um, I'm just thankful to have a venue to show it and that it's been received so well. It's just it's made me feel really nice and given some, you know, outside validation of what I've been making in a kind of a bubble for so long. Like I've made these images um, not really thinking, you know, or unsure they would ever be seen. They just, I really love them myself. I feel connected to them. And it feels really nice to know that other people feel that way as well. And I'm really looking forward to getting back back to work. Um, I can't wait to be making images again. <laughs> it's, you know, putting up a show and dealing with press and writing about it and all that takes a considerable amount of time. And I'm looking forward to... Um, to what happens next, even even though I don't know what that is exactly. Has the has the virus impacted attendance, or have people been getting to to the museum to to see all, all of the shows that are up now? Um, I'm sure. I know just even from my show that the virus has impacted attendance tremendously. I had, you know, my mom is going to fly out from California. My my brother from Colorado. My friends from. Uh, Canada, we're all planning to fly and have a big celebration around my opening, which can't happen. So um, I think that um, I'm, it, it must be impacting attendance of the other shows as well. But the flip side of that is that because of the pandemic and not as many people will see it in person, the museum has these amazing 3D interactive walkthroughs, these talks that are live, so many other ways to engage people. And I think ultimately, though not in person, more people will be reached and engaged in all of the exhibitions there as a result. And that may lead to people spending more time with art on the Internet in general, which would be very positive. So. Without a doubt. And I, I think that that is likely to happen, and I'm, 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 hoping, I'm hoping it does. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I... I you know, art is one of those things that the more you time you spend with it, the more you learn, um, and the more you then understand uh, how to find the meaning uh, in the work of multiple artists, um, which, you know, without the exploration and, and the commitment in terms of time, you might miss uh, a number of things, but we really are in a place where so much more is available online that it's it can be a tremendous asset, ultimately. Yeah, I agree. And maybe some other unknown student artists might, might um, have a larger reach as well, which is exciting. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Although um, it's still... I was just going to say to see a work in person is still such a an extraordinary thing. Yes, it's really different. I feel that very much with my work which is kind of dark and reflective in person. You're like you're you're in like you know how your perspective can change with your eyes when you're looking at a work. You can like see yourself in the work if you're standing in front of one of my pieces um which is really different than the images that are on, online. I think that's true with all kinds of artwork. Absolutely. And I was fortunate to be able to see your work in person at the museum, and the scale also plays such an important role, um, which you're not aware of so much if you're seeing it online. Yeah, yeah. It is a different experience for sure. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a wonderful interview, and we will have your biographical information um, and website and links to the show online with this interview so people can get in touch if they're interested in your work and learn more about you. Well, thank you, Mia. And, and I just want to say how much I appreciate New Observations Magazine and the issues it addresses. Um, uh, you're a, a, a huge fan of yours, and you're doing amazing work <laughs> and just really contributing to goodness and progress in the world. And uh, go new observations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, we're, we're trying. <laughs> we're trying. It's um, it's an amazing thing to have the legacy of the magazine, which 
in January will be 36 years. It's so hard to believe. And um, Lucha Pozzi, our founder, uh, is a close friend, and our association has gone on. You know, I was around when he started the magazine, so um, we our our progress in terms of creating the online free digital library has slowed because of the virus, but Rhode Island School of Design and the Museum of Modern Art have been helping to digitize the back issues. Um, so all of the mag- all of the issues of the magazine are available to read online for free or the new ones are, and the old inventory will be soon. Uh, And about 40 institutions around the country, including MoMA and the New York Public Library and MIT and Cornell and RISD and Yale and Harvard have complete sets. So um, we're, we're out there, slowly but surely, we're rebuilding. Excellent. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. And we look forward to your uh, guest editorship of um, an issue on hair in contemporary art. Um, Yes. It'll be very very exciting. So thank you so much for joining us, and um, bye for now. (laughs) 